had someone to love me, someone to call me their own. Oh, I wish I had someone to live with, cause I'm tired of living Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I use the Library of America to look at one small slice of, uh, of American writing. And currently, I am doing a series. It will be a nine-part series on Theodore Dreiser's novel, An American Tragedy. It's a very lengthy novel, so it'll take me quite a long time to get through. Um, uh, I have already looked at the first hundred pages or so so this is the second episode in that series this is the novel about a young man who you know is who you know murders a, a young woman and is put on trial and then executed for that that murder and and in the around that dreiser builds this very detailed portrayal of the american city of class relations of religion of of sexuality, of gender politics, and just all their aspects of American life. It's just so rich. It's it's certainly a candidate for the great American novel in the way that it encompasses all these different aspects of American life. I've been uh, reading this one in a slightly different way. Nor like normally, I will read the entire book and then I'll go back and take notes, and and then craft episodes based on on those notes. This time I'm going to try just reading 100 pages of it and then every day reading 100 pages and then sitting down and, and giving my thoughts on that. So I don't even know. I know roughly how the story goes, but I don't know the details of how it's going to end up or what happens to all the characters. So it's going to be more uh, reactionary in my approach. And this I explained in the previous episode that this just has to do with uh, kind of the the transitions going on in my life at this moment. And I... Not, I want to make sure I get done with this series before I, I leave the United States and, and start my new job in China. So I'm, I'm going to do a more uh, quick approach, uh, I guess a less, less thoughtful approach, a bit more reactive approach. But I, I hope that doesn't significantly decrease the conversation we can have and the, and the, the thoughts I can have about the, about the story, uh, about the novel. So... Uh, in the first hundred pages or so of of an American tragedy, we meet Clyde Griffith, who's a, a young boy raised in an impoverished religious family, a family that whose parents focus most of their energies on starting urban missions, uh, very popular thing at the turn of the century, and they they live in these missions, but they never really have much money. They're kind of basically living off donations of people and and kind of living hand to mouth most of the time. Clyde, who doesn't have that same religious devotion as his parents do, begins to become increasingly alienated. He's still very close to his family and his sister and his, his parents, but he feels there needs to be a different place for him. Uh, uh, he's got to, you know, he's got to do more with his life than just follow in his parents' footsteps. He eventually, um, after his sister runs away with, her, his sister Esta runs away with a man promising to marry her. He decides that he's also going to venture out and try to get a job. He eventually, he works for different odd jobs, but eventually works, uh, gets a, a job as uh, essentially a bellboy at a, at a hotel. And this leads him into a sexual awakening where he 
begins to visit prostitutes. He goes out. He, he has more of a social life. For the first time in his life, he's able to have a social life because of his family dynamics. He was never able to really have that before. He's able to have that working in the hotel. He doesn't have to, he's not like living under the thumb of his parents anymore. He has an income of his own that he can control. And he, he's able to uh, venture out into the world. And that includes seeing prostitutes. And then he eventually meets a girl he likes. And he's interested in romantically someone he would like to date. And this woman is named Hortense uh, Briggs. And she's essentially a, a charity girl. And that's something I'm going to talk about a little bit later in the story. I don't know if she fits formally the definition of charity girl, but that's something we can we can get to in a little bit. But um, she's an interesting character. And I think she speaks a lot to working class, the reality for working class women. I, I, I don't, you know, I think... I don't think anything Dreiser does here is not on purpose. I think he's very consciously trying to create a story of, of America and about America in many different areas of life through the story of this one young man. He, you know, he's never just interested in the story of this young man. It would have been a much shorter novel if he did. He's really interested in America. He calls it an American tragedy. So he's interested in the whole of American life. And that includes, you know, working class women and middle class women and religious people and, and all that. So I think it's important he spends so much time on this character of of uh, Hortense Briggs. It's such an odd name. It's it, it may slip my mind from time to time. But anyways, um, that's what happens in the first part of of the story. Eventually, pretty much the first hundred pages of the story is really about the maturation to a certain degree of, of Clyde Griffith and how he's able to break free of the religious life his parents gave for him and eventually becomes somewhat quasi-independent. He still lives at home, but he, he has an income. He doesn't have to eat at home anymore. He's, you know, and he's able to, to, to have a social network that's not just an extension of his, of his family, which is how it traditionally had been for him. So, though, the, the, in the next hundred pages, we're going to... Uh, a lot happens to Clyde. It's actually a very traumatic and dramatic period in his life. Um, but as we pick up, you know, I think it's chapter 13 you know, of book one of An American Tragedy. The novel is broken up into, into three books. And the first book is the shortest, made up of 19 chapters. Okay, so in chapter 13, basically we have a conflict emerging a little. It's a very small conflict considering some of the things are going to happen later to the character. But it's significant at the time. And it's basically a few moving parts here. But the, the one is that Esther, his sister, uh, who comes back um, and finds her mother and basically is living kind of undercover. Not They don't want to tell their father, Esther's father, about why she's back. She's back because she's pregnant and she's been abandoned by the man she, she was going to elope with. Now, this is, of course, is a big crisis in the family because she needs money for doctors, money for raising the kids. They want to try to find her a husband, perhaps. She needs a place to stay and that all that costs money. Right. So there's increased pressures on an already strapped family budget. And the one who has an income is is Clyde. Clyde working as a bellhop actually brings in a fair amount of money. He's got a salary of like fourteen dollars a month, but he also makes around fourteen or fifteen dollars a week in tips. He, he doesn't, he keeps this information from his family because he knows his family is going to take most of that. So he, he downplays how much money he actually makes, but he has a significant uh, source of income. He, he wastes a lot of this money, as we'll see. 
but it's a it's enough to you know be a point of contention in this part of the novel okay so over time Clyde's mother Mrs. Griffith begins to talk to Clyde about donating money essentially to the family and she makes excuses about why she needs money she, but she doesn't want to say it's because of Esther eventually Clyde figures out that Esther's back you know he just does a little private detective work on his own finds out that Esther's back is able to talk to her and he gets the story from Esther and he doesn't tell his mom until a little bit later that he knows and, and it's eventually revealed that you know openly that Esther's back between Clyde and his mother and that's why they need the money but so that's one strain of it the other strain is his relationship with Hortense and this is where the concept of a charity girl comes into into the story and I don't think Dreiser doesn't use the term charity girl in fact I'm stealing this from a historian's account of working class women in New York City in the early 20th century the book's called Cheap Amusements it's a really great book it's short it's like 150 pages and it's you know six seven eight chapters but it's a very compelling and quick and, and gets right to the point history book about working class women and their engagement with consumer culture now i do think the term charity girl was out there at the time it's just something that i don't see dreiser using and in a way hortense never never really sleeps with clyde she's she's a bit of a tease i guess that might be the term uh, i don't know if that's the politically correct term to use here but she the way Dreiser presents it is she's certainly teasing him constantly and, and manipulating his affection and his sexual attraction to her to get favors, you know. And it starts out small favors like dinners and nights out and and small bits of clothing and things like that. But eventually, Hortense wants a fur coat that costs like $150. And she's eventually able to negotiate with the seller down to like 115 and maybe an installment purchase or something. But it's a long, you think in this novel, it's a long novel, but Dreiser still spends like 30 pages on this fur coat. And the negotiations with the, the dealer over this and how Hortense eventually figures out that she has some money, but she can get the rest from Clyde. But how can I get it from Clyde without sleeping with him? And then maybe I'll kind of wink, wink to him, get them worked up, get the money that way, but then I might still have to sleep with them. So that's what's going on in Hortense's head. And this is what brings us to the concept of charity girl. It's a charity girl, as I understand it, from what I read, was a response to the fact that working class women, girls, young women, unmarried women, made so much, well, women generally made so much less than men. Partially, this was due to the concept of the family wage, which is something unions fought for. Unions fought for the family wage, which meant that, you know, a man's income could support a family. The idea being women shouldn't have to be in the workforce. But in fact, many working class women were in working in factories and many unmarried girls were working in factories. But they didn't make nearly as much as the men did. They often got unskilled jobs and things like that. So. But they're part of the same consumer culture as everyone else. And that consumer culture ventured off into many areas, right? Whether it was sports or uh, the movies or dance halls or theaters and vaudeville and Coney Island. And historians have been writing about this for a long time now. It's a, been a big part of historical writing for the last 30 years or so is, is kind of exposing this part of life. There's some great books. One's called Age of a Bachelor and the one Kathy Pice's book on... Cheap Amusements is a good one, too. They all dig up this consumer history, right? And the working class is access to this, right? And we actually see evidence in this story, an American tragedy, about how 
working class people had greater access to consumer goods and one is installment purchases, right? And in the negotiation back and forth between the buyer, the uh, Hortense and the seller of this fur coat, you see different examples of the kind of credit working class people could get, right? They, they debate or they, they kind of negotiate, you know, maybe installment purchases. Like, I'll buy it, but I'll pay it off over a year or something. And he didn't want to do that. And then they actually talk about like a layaway type of situation. All these things were really available to working class people and it allowed them to buy things like automobiles or radios and other kind of new technologies that could be in the home, right? But they didn't have enough money to be able to buy a lot of this stuff with cash. So the extension of credit to the working class population was important. And we actually see when you look at the stats, the economic statistics leading up to the Great Depression, like the increase in debt among the working class over the course of the 1920s, this was a real factor in the cause of the Great Depression, much like the Great Recession of 2007, 2008, you know, high levels of debt among the working class was a big part of of the of the crash. Now, back to the point of charity girls, it's, there was this consumer culture that they wanted to be part of. Right. And this was a very homogenizing thing for immigrant families. Right. You know, maybe the immigrants, they stayed in kind of their ethnic neighborhoods, but younger people became part of an American culture that was enjoyed in in a broader urban environment. But to have access to it, you needed money, you needed cash. So w young women, working class women who didn't have access to cash would then date men and exchange sexual favors for access to consumer goods or access to a nightlife or other kinds of kind of public amusements and commercial pleasures. And that's that, that's basically the concept of the charity girl. And uh, you can call it what you want, um, but that's I'll use, I'll use the term charity girl for that. Now, Hortense never sleeps with Clyde, so it never you never really see the exchange. But you see her using her sexuality very aggressively and, you, and flirting with Clyde and getting him to do things that you know, are perhaps ill-advised, like buying a very expensive fur coat. The, the coat he eventually helps buy for her is $115. So that's like, it's like $2,000, right? Which, you know, so it's a lot of money for Clyde. And eventually he chooses to help Hortense buy this fur coat, but it's happening at the same time that his mother's asking for money for Esta and Esta's support and preparation for the kid and all that. So Clyde is torn between these two and eventually sides with his his dick and gives the money to Hortense and actually lies to his parents saying I, don't, I can't afford to give you any money I'm, I'm broke right and as we've already seen he's been hiding how much income he actually does make as a as a bellhop at the at the hotel you know the family doesn't really know how much he makes so he's able to lie to them effectively and, and basically deny his sister some of the support she needs at this crisis moment in in her life, so it's it's kind of the first really bad decision that that Clyde makes. It's, it's essentially the first the first lie we we really see from him. I guess he lied about his income before, but it's a it's kind of a a really big um, fib at this point because he's you know he's making it very difficult for his mom to keep up the facade. They're not telling the father. There's not any money in the family. She needs money just like even for doctor's bills and stuff. So he's in a sense putting his sister's life at risk by buying this fur coat. 
Um, but that's the choice he makes. And it, it shows you the power of sexuality on young men, of course, and especially Clyde, who had this kind of dysfunctional upbringing and he wasn't properly socialized into gender you know, relations, I think. That might be a subtext here that Dreiser is getting at. So anyways, that's the opening drama of, of, of the first, basically most of the rest of book one of the, of the story revolves around that drama. But I just want to give you one quote. This is actually way back in chapter 13 that talks about this, this, uh, this treating. Let's, let's use the term treating for now. Quote, she was not at all backward. At the same time, in speaking of the things she needed or liked to have, little things at first, a new powder puff, a lipstick, a box of powder, or a bottle of perfume. Later, and without having yielded anything more to Clyde than a few elusive and evasive endearments, intimate and languorous reclinings in the arms, in his arms, which promised much, but always came to nothing, she made so bold as to indicate to him at different times and in different ways, purses, blouses, slippers, stockings, a hat, which she would like to buy, if only she had the money. And he, in order to hold her favor and properly ingratiate her himself, proceeded to buy them. Though at times, and because of some other developments in connection with his family, it pressed him hard to do so. And yet he was beginning to see towards the end of the fourth month. He was apparently little farther advanced in her favors than when he had in the beginning. In short, he was conducting a feverish and almost painful pursuit without any definite promise of reward. End quote. So, you know, I don't want to blame Hortense in a way because of the big inequality in payment. I don't think Dreiser gives any specific numbers on here, but it's pretty clear that, you know, women were supplementing their income this way through sexual favors and flirting and dating. And that was a way of helping them survive and also participate in a, in a mass culture that was almost demanding and encouraging their participation. But the economy wasn't compensating them for their labor in, in a way that would really allow them to join that consumer society in in a significant way. And so this becomes a way to, to do that. And it's still true to a degree, right? The, the, the gender pay gap is still still with us. Okay, so with the fur coat stuff out of the way, we get a nice little set piece. Basically, it involves, you know, all of Clyde and his friends and their girl, girls all going out, uh, kind of out for a night, for, you know, out, out partying, right? And it, it goes over like three chapters. The I think it's chapter 17, 18, and 19 of book one, the final three chapters. Well, chapter 19 is special, but now we see here a really, there's a really nice set pieces about the kind of the nightlife that young people could participate in in cities. And this is not a huge city. This is Kansas City, but it shows you that by the early 20th century, there was a there was a, a consumer culture in all these cities. A lot of this deals with Clyde's jealousy because uh, um, Hortense would dance with other bo boys and other men and, and flirt with them. And, and Clyde's just seething in rage watching this. And then, you know, by the end, though, they, they kind of come to an agreement that, that they're going to be together. And everything's kind of fine, but you really see how immature Clyde is because he really can't handle seeing Hortense with anyone else, especially after the, the whole fur coat situation where he thinks he's owed sex, you know, and it's, I don't think Dreiser uses such 
straightforward language, but it's pretty clear. I mean, he's, he's not veiling it very much. He's, he's expecting sex in exchange for the code. And even Hortense's internal monologue suggests she realizes that if she's going to pull off this scheme, she's going to have to sleep with Clyde at some point. And that's not something she's indifferent to, but we really get this also the, the feeling that she's trying to extend this relationship as much as she can and to, to get as much out of Clyde before she, she has sex with him to, you know, because that would, I guess, change the, the nature of the relationship. But it's a nice, there's some nice set pieces here, but there's not that too much to talk about, I suppose. But then it's in chapter 19 when they're, they're heading back and they're, they're riding and they're kind of, they've been partying and eventually there's a car accident and the car accident leads to the death of a little girl. At the time, they just injured this girl. She later on dies you know, just a few hours later, but she's severely mortally injured in this, in this car accident. And then they like flee the scene. They, they flee the scene, they get away. And there's this long, the chapter is fairly long where we basically see this accident take place and then their efforts to escape and run in all different directions and try to save themselves as they're being pursued by the police. So it ends with a fairly exciting chase scene in which we have the police chasing down the members of this party you know, after having essentially killed a, a young girl. Now, the car they're using, they essentially stole. I think it's like their boss's car that they use without permission. And But anyways, it, it's kind of cool. It's not something I've seen in early 20th century literature before. It's like a car chase. And I guess this novel is, I'm not sure. I guess it's set when it was written. The, the story in the backdrop of it is a murder that took place in 1906. But I, it seems to be set right in... Um, in the 1920s and we have uh you know cars now so we can have a car chase a police car chase and i don't know when the first literary car chase was it i'm certain it wasn't this but it's the first one i ever came across and that's how book one ends it's basically they get a you know they they get away i think one gets eventually gets caught um, but clyde flees kansas city he's been basically identified as an accessory to the crime the the guy who's driving sparser he gets caught but you know he he eventually gives everyone's name so everyone else has to run and 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 that's the end of book one of of an american tragedy yeah. now the book is in three books the, the 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 whole story is in three books and 900 pages and book one only covers about 150 pages so that you know book two and three are a lot longer than this so it's not like we're a third way through the story by any means so then we shift actually to a few years in the future and during this time clyde has essentially been on the run he's, he's had to flee kansas city He's gotten jobs in various places. He's like a half a dozen cities are mentioned that he worked in. He worked under an assumed name. He sometimes sends letters back to his mom, but he really can't get replies because the police, he can't let the police know where he lives. So he's been on the run and he's doing okay given the this, this circumstances. He has been able to keep a job and keep his head above water, but he's been basically bouncing around from town to town uh, and unable to to see his family. Esta, meanwhile, has, has gotten married. So she's in a more established uh, situation. The story actually picks up, though, at the beginning of book two, not with Clyde directly, but with Samuel Griffins. And Samuel Griffins was mentioned earlier in the story. He's essentially, he's the uncle of, of Clyde, and they never met. Clyde never met him. And uh, 
Samuel Griffins actually feels a bit bad about how he sort of neglected his brother and his brother's been poor all this time. And Samuel Griffins, meanwhile, runs like a, a collar, a, like a, a textile factory, essentially. And he makes these collars. I, I don't know. In, in those days, people tended to like have the separable collars and they would they could, you know, wrinkle them or you can iron them or wash them. And so people would wear the same shirt, but change the collar. Right. And the same thing with the wrist, the, you know, the cuffs are on, on the on the suits. So they he made those and he was fairly wealthy. It's, it's not a huge factory, but it's a it's a significant one. And he's fairly rich, but he's been basically neglecting his brother. So that's that's there's a little bit of guilt among Samuel Griffiths for that. And essentially he comes home one day to the family and and they're in by the way they're in upstate new york a town called like her like i don't know if, i guess i can look that up quick yeah i just looked it up apparently that's it's fictional but this is where the murder that well upstate new york's where the murder that inspired this novel took place so um you know i don't know how much of this story is actually drawn from it i you know I, there's some parallels significant ones and one is the location but anyways um samuel griffins basically comes back one day from from work and he was off to like chicago on a business trip it was like it was a conference because uh, the east coast producers of of clothing were feeling pressure from being undercut in prices by the west coast and we actually see a good example of employer organization something that happened increasingly in the early 20th century employers and manufacturers producers started to create associations chambers of commerce or other you know employers associations that would fight unions but also kind of arrange prices they wouldn't you know they could avoid antitrust laws by not combining but by actually agreeing on what salaries and wages or the prices of commodities would be so they kind of work together and you start to see these business associations forming in a way kind of a response to union organization at the time and uh my good friend chad pearson my good friend but you know, we, we knew each other for many years. He's written some really great stuff on this. So look up Chad Pearson's work on employer organizations. Some really great scholarship there. Well, he comes back from this conference in Chicago saying, I've, I, I found my nephew, right? And his nephew is referring to his Clyde. And he says, I, I'm thinking about letting him come and work in the factory. And there's some debate in the family over, you know, some people want him to come in. Others are a little, feel it's like kind of nepotism and feel kind of gross about inviting him in, inviting him into the factory and into the family. But Samuel essentially feels bad for abandoning his brother for so many years and letting them live in poverty that he says, we're going to give this guy a chance. We're not going to, he says, we're not going to give him like, we're not going to make him the manager of the plant. We're going to, he's going to have to prove himself and all that. But he seems to have his, head on right and we're going to give him a chance so samuel griffins does that and that we got two chapters focused on samuel griffith and then we flip to clyde and we get what's happened to him and we learn how he's basically been on the run for a few years going from town to town in very loose contact with his family basically can only send letters from time to time we get one of these exchanges in fact he does leave an address via kind of general delivery um so as his mother can write a letter back and we get this exchange and the mother th these letters are interesting because he, he spends a lot of time Clyde spends a lot of time talking about how 
he feels bad about what happened with the girl, but he really doesn't think they were to blame. And she very much the, you know, the believer in redemption and, and a Christian really sees, you know, still has this love for her son and doesn't want to abandon him, but really does see him deep down. He's a good boy. She uses this kind of this language you'd use to a smaller child, right? You're still a good boy. By this point, Clyde's like 21 years old and, you know, obviously he should be taking responsibility for his his flawed actions. But, uh, you know, his mother is basically enabling him. And I, I think I don't know how that's going to unfold in the course of the story, but I get the sense that his mother is a bit of an enabling type, enabling like preventing him from really taking responsibility for his actions. I, in a lot of ways, she infantilized him in his upbringing, not giving him a proper education and, and really not letting him experience social life in a normal way. But at the same time, through letters like this, you see her really apologizing for him, which makes it more difficult, I think, for for Clyde to understand what he did and really, you know, come back and and face, you know, face the medicine, uh, take the medicine for what he did. All right. And then after we learn what Clyde's been up to since the car accident and his flight from Kansas City, we we find him working in this club in in Chicago. And we hear the story, we get the story of how he finds out that this guy, Samuel Griffiths, is visiting and he approaches him and, and, and reveals himself as Clyde Griffiths, you know, his nephew. And it's at that point that that Samuel basically says, OK, if you call on me in in upstate New York, you can have a job. Right. I'm not promising a great job or anything. It may not even be as much money as you're making here, but. You know, I'll I'll do what I can for you if you're interested in in entering the family business. Now, this is something that Clyde had actually thought about long before when he first wanted to get a job. He he thought maybe I'll go reach out to my uncle who has this factory and maybe that's a place that I can kind of move up. Certainly he has hopes that, you know, the family connection will give him kind of fast track him up to maybe management or higher levels. Um, Now. I'm going to stop at about this point, chapter four of, of book two, because that brings us to about chapter or page 200 of, of the story. Um, but there's a really uh, interesting side reflection that Dreyfus, not Dreyfus, Dreiser, <laughs> that Dreiser gives us on, on class in early 20th century America. Quote, for while Samuel Griffiths, as well as his son Gilbert, realized that this was small pay, not for an ordinary apprentice, but for Clyde, since he was a relative, yet so and Clyde were both towards the practical rather than the charitable in connection with all those who worked for them, that the nearer the beginning to this factory was to a clear mark of necessity and compulsion, the better. Neither could tolerate the socialistic theory of relative to capitalist exploitation. As both saw it, there had to be higher and higher social orders to which one lower class could aspire. They had to have castes. One was foolishly interfering with and disrupting necessary and unavoidable social standards when one tried to unduly favor anyone, even a relative. It was necessary when dealing with the classes and intelligence below one, commercially or financially, to handle them according to the standards which were their customs. And the best of these standards were those which held the lower classes to a clear realization of how difficult it was to come by money to an understanding of how very necessary it was for all who were engaged in what both considered the only really important constructive work of the world, that of material manufacture, to understand how essential it was to be drilled, and that sharply and systematically, in all the details and processes which compromise that constructive work, and so to become inured to the narrow and 
ostentatious life in so doing. It was good for the characters. It informed and strengthened the minds and spirits of those who were destined to rise. And those who were not should be kept right where they were. Unquote. And that's, that's the social Darwinian theory. It's also very much an ideology of the producer and the, the value of the producer. Dreiser, for his own, you know, he was a socialist and, you know, a pretty open one at the time. So it's that that passage is needs to be taken in the context of Dreiser's own views about the reality of capitalism and how his characters, uh, particularly Clyde, don't, if they ever do develop that social critique of the class system. He certainly doesn't have it at this point in his career where he still feels that the struggle for upward mobility is is significant. So that's going to do it for this episode. Uh, it's a good place to leave off conveniently. Um, where we'll go next time, I'm not sure because I'm, I'm reading this you know, 100 pages a day and, and giving my comments right away. So I'm not quite sure. Uh, clearly, we're going to probably find out what happens to Clyde in this in this new workplace, um, working for for his uncle, in you know in the shirt factory in upstate New York. So, anyways, if you have any of your, any of your own feelings about this story, if you've read American the American Tragedy and American Tragedy, and you have your own feelings, is there anything I missed? Is there any important themes I didn't talk about? Certainly, there was a lot of things I must have skipped over because I only have so much time to reflect on these, but. If you do have your own contributions to make, please leave comments below, or you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I will be back with the next 100 pages of, of an American tragedy in the next episode. This will take me through chapter um, 17, no, 16 of book two, if you're reading along. So with that, I will... I will depart. Thanks as always for listening, and I'll see you next time with, with part three of my coverage of an American tragedy. Meet me tonight all alone. For I have a sad story to tell you. It's a story that's never been told.